manazo. I was just checking a couple of data points on the internet just before I came here, get my facts straight. And a little microcosm, macrocosm parallel flashed on me that each of us has our own substrate, I think rather clearly, which is a repository of an awful lot of knowledge that comes up sporadically. There's the microcosm. And the macrocosm in our modern world is the internet for the substrate. And we know our collective substrate, internet, spews out almost inconceivable, perhaps inconceivable <laughs> amount of OCDD, and it's called spam. <laughs> spam like, dearest beloved, have you received one of those? <laughs> dearest beloved, I'm an African princess. <laughs> And I've just inherited three trillion dollars. <laughs> but I need just 3,000 to get it out of the bank. Would you help me? <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that our own individual substrate comes up with. It's so utterly charming. But it is, after all, crap. And in the midst of that, there are some legitimate emails legitimate emails, there's actually an awful lot of valid information as well, but it's mixed up with a lot of spam and unwanted junk mail. And shamatha is designed to develop better and better filters. <laughs> so today we move to the second phase of our meditative cultivation of compassion, attending to a deeper stratum of dukkha. I hesitate to use the word suffering because the word suffering really pretty much refers to blatant suffering in English. Um, you might have noticed that every time they serve ice cream, I eat it. You know, that's not because I like to suffer. I like the taste of ice cream. <laughs> you know, it's pleasurable, so nobody can persuade me that ice cream tastes bad, because it doesn't. It tastes actually very good. Okay. But the pleasure from it, we'd still say, is enmeshed within a network of dukkha. So this second dimension here is not so obvious. But upon reflection, it really appears that the kind of the dukkha that we're attending to, this suffering of change, or the dukkha of change, as we go deeper into the wise cultivation of compassion, um, really is flat out flat out pertains to the unsatisfying nature of hedonism. I think that's just pretty much it exactly. It's the unsatisfying, that's the dukkha aspect, it's unsatisfying nature of hedonism. And hedonism re refers to, of course, just a brief reminder, to all the type of pleasures we experience in this desire realm that are aroused by pleasant stimuli mental and sensory. So I was checking out, when I was checking out some data points, where does the word hedonism come from? Who first advocated it? And lo and behold, there was no, su no surprise at all in store among Western deep thinkers. It was Democritus. It goes back to the fourth century 
pre-Socratic thinker Democritus, he explicitly advocated, advocated hedonism. And it boils down to pleasure, good. Displeasure, bad. That's pretty much it. I mean, that's it. Uh, and so there's the roots of hedonism right now. If it feels good, it's good. If it feels bad, it's bad. And carry on. But what came as no surprise, although I wasn't aware of it until I just checked out five minutes ago, that he is, of course I knew this, but I hadn't put the put two together. He's the father of the Western philosophical tradition, which became the scientific tradition of atomism, to have the first atomic theory, but also the first physicalist. Everything boiled down to atoms in space. So should that surprise us? That a person who is adopting a materialistic worldview, lo and behold, has a materialistic set of values. Hedonism is the exact complement. Is right in bed with materialism as a worldview. No surprise there. And so materialistic worldview, everything boils down to atoms. Materialistic values, we value that which we consider to be real, and that is atoms and their emergent properties. And then we lead our lives accordingly, hedonistic way of life, consumer-driven, based upon acquisition and consumption. It's all of a piece. It's really all of a piece. And also, it was Democritus, really comes as no surprise, that said that all of our immediate perceptual experience of the world is all illusory, because you can't see atoms. They alone are ultimately real, atoms in space. All we see are subjective impressions. Does that sound familiar? Subjective impressions, but they're not really out there. So once again, we have the classic division of ultimate and relative truth that runs through all of Buddhist philosophy. The relative truth, which is just relative to your own, you're a human being, you're a frog, you're a, a mammal, or what have you, um, that's all your subjective impressions. But you don't get to reality. This is a really core point. You don't get to reality through direct observation, through direct perception. You don't get there. It doesn't matter how clever you are. You don't get there, because all you get is subjective impressions. The only way you get to what is ultimately real is by way of the nuggen, the intellect. You have to leap over the veil of appearances. That theme has run through Western philosophy for a very, very long time, right into the modern world, until it gets decapitated by people like Stephen Hawking. How interesting. How interesting. Isaac Newton attributed the core atomic theory that he embraced to Democritus. Here's the holder of, ch holder of the chair of Isaac Newton at Cambridge University, who's turning around and said, not so fast. Atoms being the ultimate reality, not so fast. Antiquated, old, dead. So they're together. We come back to the theme of dukkha, and this will not go for an hour. That was hopefully a one-timer yesterday. But to set it up, again, to try to imbue as much meaning, as richness, depth, and wisdom, and understanding to our cultivation of compassion as possible. That we're not just running through a little liturgy, which can be so flat, or just doing a little exercise to kind of keep, give us a warm and tingly heart, feeling in the heart. It can be a bit sappy. So let's go radically non-sappy. It raises deep issues. Like here we are in this universe, why does it have to be suffering at all? I mean, really. 
Couldn't there be a couldn't there be a universe with no suffering? I mean, it's both painful. We really don't like it. So how about just an alternate universe with just people eat and drink and they just don't suffer. They do whatever they want to do, but just what do we need this for? And the materialist response coming out of neo-Darwinism, Darwin, when I say neo-Darwinism, it's Darwin, it's genetics, and it's brain chemistry, neuroscience. Put those three together, bring them in the 21st century, neo-Darwinism. Is what we, uh, all of, and this is directly from a very esteemed friend of mine, uh, who's a very ardent um, proponent of Darwin and his views in the 21st century, and he said all of our mental tendencies, all of our emotions and so forth and so on, all of our mental capacities, all of these we have because they prove to be adaptive from an evolutionary perspective, from the perspective of natural selection. They prove themselves to be adaptive. In other words, they were useful. Useful for, hell, here's the big question, useful for what? Well, we're talking Darwin here. So useful for survival and procreation. As Francisco Varela, another brilliant friend of mine, uh, this one late, a late friend of mine, said you must understand in terms of natural selection that we are nat not, natural selection together with genetic mutation does not occur in such a fashion to optimize, to optimize our abilities. That's just not how it works. Natural selection works to enable us to adapt adequately. That is, we shift, we alter, we mutate, and so forth. We adapt to changing environments adequately so that we can survive and procreate, but not so that we can be all that we can be. That's a nice slogan for the army, but that's not how natural selection works. Okay? So with those in mind, we can ask, well, how about suffering? Is that adaptive? Has that helped us survive? And then, having survived, get to the point that, we're, that we can procreate, and then do it? The answer is unequivocally yes. Sure. And that is, we, it, it, it's painful to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And if you are, you don't get to procreate. And so, pain in the body is a signal, it's a messenger of injury or disease. So we can do something about those, perhaps. But then it's also a signal of old age. What do you do about that? Commit suicide? So that's not so useful. Just get creaky old joints, arthritis, rheumatism. How is that useful? Is that adaptive? Or is that just kind of like something else? So there is physical pain. There's mental pain. There's mental suffering. We all know about that. And that is, oh, I wish I had somebody to mate with. Oh, I'm so painful. Oh, I want to have... Oh, now I've mate, now I've mated with somebody. Now I feel happy for at least 10 minutes. Mm. So mental pain can also, dissatisfaction, I, I want, you know, I want, I want, that can clearly be adaptive so that we can survive and procreate. And so there it is. But does, is that really, I mean, not granted, of course, that's a very simple and very concise explanation of it. But if we think deeply, much more deeply and broadly than I can possibly summarize in maybe a half an hour or so, if we really expand our awareness with all of our full full muscle of intelligence, and look at the whole bandwidth, especially of mental suffering, that we experience. Does it really make sense? Is it really intelligible to say, yes, that whole bandwidth of suffering was all adaptive. That really helps to make us survive and procreate. Does that make any sense at all? Or have we, have we just simply put our brains inside of a thimble? You know, 
think only within this tiny box because this is the only one that's scientific. That's where you know, severe imagination deficit disorder really comes in. So I'm suggesting, of course, not. And I think, really, we have a, a, a marvelous archetypal instance of this in the legendary and quite possibly completely factual account of Gautama's great escape, his great departure, his great disillusionment. And that is, in terms of the great casino hall of samsara, he came out with the, you know, the mega bucks lottery win because he, he, he got it all, right? He got the good family, he got the good wife, he got the healthy kid. He not only had a wife, he could procreate as much as he wanted to because he had a whole harem and more on demand, you know, and, and loving father and success tracks. His good health must have been quite handsome. And all of that, in the prime of his life, because people didn't die off in 35 of old age and back then. He, he lived at the age of 80. That was not remarkable. So he was 29, and he'd got it all. He'd got it all. In terms of hedonic pleasure, he won. And when there were no glowering bad prospects on the horizon, it was like, congratulations, enjoy, enjoy. And there, at the age of 29, he just became searingly aware of the realities of aging, sickness, and death. And suddenly, this, there was an eruption of dissatisfaction, an eruption that no matter how nice it was, it was all like just looking, a f looking at a fruit in, in high-speed time-lapse photography and just looking at the fruit and just seeing it rot before your eyes. So you can't even have it near your nose. It stinks so badly that you say, please take it away. It used to be a really fantastic, perfect mango, but it's, please, take it away. It's, it's, it's blinding me. Right? And you're seeing that in fast-motion photography, but with all of the senses intact. And that's what he was seeing. That's, that's what he was seeing. He was seeing his own life in fast-motion, time-lapse photography, and seeing how it would all play out. And it was unbearable. Exactly how was that suffering, that mental suffering, how is that adaptive? He didn't have any more kids. That should be a big clue. That wasn't very adaptive. He could have had a lot more kids, but he didn't. From that point on, he was a biological dead end. That suffering was a bi made him a biological dead end. He lost all desire to have any more kids. Right. And so that, to my mind, is the most interesting of all sufferings. The suffering of disappointment when we lose something and bet something bad happens, not terribly interesting. Physical suffering, not so interesting. It's nerve endings. But to have it all and still be dissatisfied. And like many of you, I'm sure, I've known a number of rich people, wealthy people, some of them really amazingly wealthy. And there they are. And again, they won. And see chronic depression. Chronic depression. Just lingering. And knowing anything that money could buy, they could buy it. The only thing they can't buy is what they really want. And that's a sense of satisfaction or just simple happiness. So that's where suffering gets interesting. So there's the dukkha, the blatant suffering of the desire realm. And then there's the pleasure that arises in the desire realm that is hinged upon, aroused by and sustained by craving to get it and attachment to hold on to it. 
And that's where this second level of suffering really comes in. And to attend to ourselves and to sentient beings with, the, with that eye of wisdom, to feel genuine compassion for those even while they're enjoying the winning the super lottery of samsara, even then, and to feel compassion even then, for ourselves even then, that takes some wisdom and insight. So we can raise the question once again, though, and that is, to my mind, Darwinian evolution, genetics, neuroscience, each one of those individually and collectively are brilliant branches of science. Fantastic. And they stem right out of Democritus. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lineage. It's like a lineage. It's like we speak of the oral lineage within Buddhism. This is a lineage. It goes back to Democritus, picks up in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, carries right on through. But it was coupled with Christianity for a while, which made it, you know, the, these, these Christian scientists, scientists who were Christians like Galileo, Descartes, Kepler, Newton, and so forth. They're all Christian. So they're getting enough of the eudaimonic well-being, of meaning, from their Christian faith. So they didn't need to look to science for that because they're already getting it. Right? So they were looking to science. Well, of course, that's a whole complex story, but for them it was a very religious, a religious pursuit. Again, with, in the case of Newton, he spent the last 25 years of his life writing far more theology than he did science because his science was embedded in his theological framework. But it's a lineage there materialism, everything boiling down to matter, and hedonism, a direct lineage coming right to the 21st century, still on a rampage to consume, as if the human population is a, a flesh-eating bacteria trying to consume all of the external resources of the planet until it's a dry husk, and all based upon a materialistic worldview and a consumer-driven set of values and way of life. But there is the question that just completely remains unanswered from within this materialistic framework, this neo-Darwinian framework. Why on earth wasn't Gautama happy? He should have been happy. That would have been adaptive. Be happy, uh, get, you know, if he, so he had a bad night. He woke up and saw all of his harems, you know, with drool coming out of their mouths. You know, and, and now they're 21 years old and gorgeous and... No, they didn't look so cute, but all he has to do is wake them up and say, hey, cutie, put on some makeup. You know, it didn't need to be that difficult. <laughs> right? This was not adaptive. It's inexplicable. There's no way that human beings should evolve for the first 100,000 years to come up to Gautama and give that kind of that rise to that kind of dissatisfaction. And bear in mind, he wasn't alone. He wasn't simply one mutant. There are a lot of people like that, and there were then, and there are now, and there have been in every generation in between. These people who are saying, yes, I recognize the value hedonic, and it's not enough, it's unsatisfying. And that phrase, unsatisfying, just cannot be translated into a materialistic worldview, because one is looking for greater meaning, and the word meaning doesn't mean anything in materialistic worldview. It doesn't mean anything. A meaningful life. So, 
if a materialistic worldview just doesn't give us any cogent, satisfying explanation for why we can be still dissatisfied, profoundly dissatisfied, even when everything hedonically is going our way. And there are so many cases of that. That's one of the great advantages of knowing the lives of the rich and famous, knowing the lives of great celebrities, movie stars, who can, cannot kick their cocaine habits. And they're handsome, and they're rich, and they're adored, and so forth. They're going to prostitutes, they're going for cocaine, they can't kick alcohol. It's one you say, hey, look, you can, be a, a, you can be a bum in a ghetto and get cocaine or alcohol, and you won the lottery, and they lost the lottery, and you're going for the same thing? What's wrong with you? Why are you living like a bum when you've got a $10 million estate and that's only one of several? Why are you living like a bum? This doesn't make any sense, and that's exactly right. It doesn't make any sense. Because this doesn't make any sense within a materialistic framework. Does it make any sense from the Buddhist framework? Number one, nobody did it to us. Nobody got bored one day, created samsara, and then let us squirm in it. So nobody else, there's no who done it. It's here, how it happened, how it originated. Open question. But here we are in the midst of it. And what's suffering good for? Not why is it here, because that would imply somebody gave it to us. Why did I give somebody a clock? Well, I wanted you to maybe keep the time for me. You can ask that question if there was some intention behind it. Why? Why? Because somebody had some, something in mind. Well, we can't, there's no answer to why samsara, because in the Buddhist framework, nobody did it to us. It's, voila, there it is. It's a fact. It's like gravity. Why gravity? Why couldn't everything just float? Well, there's no answer for that. It's just, there's gravity. You could like it to be stronger or weaker, but, you know, inverse square law is what you get. So, just deal with it. And samsara is like the inverse square law of gravity. Just, well, there it is. Whatever you believe, there it is. But within this context, so not asking why, but now, given that it's a fact, dukkha is a fact, it's the first big fact, the first noble truth, or reality for aryas, What's it good for? What's it good for? Well, hedonically, you know it's good for. It's good for survival and, survival and procreation. It's good for that. That means something. It's good for avoiding more pain and so forth. So we know that. But when it's run its usefulness for the pursuit and enjoyment of hedonic pleasure, where we got the hedonic pleasure and now we're no longer enjoying it, now what's it good for? So up to that point, it's quite clear. So you can get more hedonic pleasure, right? But once you've got the hedonic pleasure and you're still unsatisfied, there's still dissatisfaction, still dukkha, what's it good for? Why are we still restless? Why can't we just come to rest? There's a title of a a very fine biography of Isaac Newton called Never at Rest. Never at Rest. It characterized him as a profoundly religious man and perhaps the greatest scientist in history. What's it good for? Well, if we make it good for something, that is, it's not dished up. I think from a Buddhist perspective, we say, by its own nature, by its own inherent characteristics, suffering is not meaningful. One may just get really rich, really depressed, and become really weird. I think Howard Hughes might be a pretty good example of that. Really rich and 
really weird. I mean, I like ice cream, but I don't... When a certain flavor of 31 flavors, it's a brand in America, 31 flavor, you have it in Mexico, everywhere now. But when a certain flavor of 31 flavors ran out, 31 flavors won't make anymore, and Howard Hughes really liked it, he said, make me some. He wrote, he, he wrote 31 flavors, he said, make me some. He said, well, we ran out, we're not making that. He said, make me some. You want to order 10,000 gallons? Yeah. <laughs> he ate a couple of gallons, got bored. <laughs> that's a true story. And so, that's one thing you can do with your dissatisfaction. Order 10,000 gallons of an exotic ice cream. But I don't think it's very meaningful. Can we make it meaningful? And so the onus always comes back to the, to the sentient being. Not blaming somebody else, God, Buddha, mom and dad, genes, natural selection, or matter. But simply taking the responsibility. Here is suffering. Can I make it meaningful? And the dissatisfaction from the pleasures, or with, in response to the pleasures of the desire realm, may inspire one to drop everything, save up the money, and come to a place like the Mind Center for eight weeks. Because if you came here looking for hedonic pleasure, well, as far as the food and lodging is concerned, you came to the right place. <laughs> Not bad. I mean, I've never eaten so well in my life. <laughs> I'm coming back. <laughs> and I have to clean my own room at home, you know. And often, especially when my wife's off, I have to wash my own clothes. And I have to clean up after myself. It's such a bummer. And here, it's really, this is pretty cool. <laughs> but it really wasn't why Klaus created this. And when all is said and done, it's not quite why I'm here either. Why any of us are here. So we have to be very careful about advertising how great the food is here. Um, but it was for something else. And, and this doesn't be, need to be elaborated because we all know our own motivations. And I think it's probably, I strongly suspect, is true for every single one of us here. We didn't come here to try to get greater hedonic pleasure. Right? You really can stay home for that. And so here we are. It motivated us. That suffering, that dissatisfaction motivated us to find something more meaningful. The possibility that we might find greater satisfaction, fulfillment, well-being, joy, bliss, that's not dependent upon pleasant stimuli. Because you knew, you knew the type of meditation we'd be doing here. None of them are, you know, licking candy, shamatha. That wasn't one of them. It's watching your nostrils. But discovering then through our own experience, there is in fact another tap. There's another faucet. Something else that may bring forth happiness. We know a lot of other things too. Sex, good food, beautiful sunsets, music, and so forth and so on. All of those stimulus-driven. Here's one that's not stimulus-driven another type of joy that is actually genuine. And genuine in this way, it's really, it's, it's exactly the right word. Genuine as opposed to misleading, fake, or misleading, like I'm an African princess. Oh. And that is, if we're, and this is where these, this whole theme of dukkha and sukha comes in, and that is if something is an authentic, genuine source of happiness, then like an artesian well, water bubbling up through sand out in the desert. Every time you come to it, you should get water. The longer you stay there and drink, 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 you should just get more and more water. Whenever you come back, you get more water. Whenever, and as long as you're drinking, you get water. I mean, that's a real true source of water, you know, relatively speaking. 
an artesian well really delivers the goods. It's just delivering water all the time. That's a source of water. That's true. So if you want water, go to an artesian well. It just keeps on delivering and delivering, and probably long after you're dead, it's still delivering. Right? That's a true source of water. We want happiness, so what's a true source of happiness? Other people? Family values? The perfect marriage? Great kids? If it's great kids, the more the merrier. Just have lots of them. Because <laughs> each one will just be a, just an artesian well of joy. <laughs> what out there? <laughs> what out there is an artesian well of joy? Have you ever really wanted to have sex for six hours straight? <laughs> okay, you may leave now, the rest of you can stay. <laughs> I dare you and I double dare you. We didn't have to put somebody in a, in a tank and say, you're just going to have to tell sex till you're, you say, I give, I give. <laughs> So there it is. But really, what is a true source of happiness? And the Buddhist premise, we don't have to believe it, but we can certainly explore it, is none of the hedonic stuff is a true source. It may or may not catalyze. A woman who's being raped is having sex. Right? I mean, the organs are going where they go. Whoever regards that as happy. Right? Probably not even for the rapist. I mean, it's, it's a, just an act of brutality. And so... Getting real, turning away from that which may or may not catalyze happiness to that which is actually an authentic source. And lo and behold, shamatha is. We're not talking ultimate here, but if people have achieved shamatha, completely stabilized in it, every time they go to the substrate consciousness, they're tapping into an artesian well. Now, it's not ultimate, it's not immutable, it's not absolute reality, but every time they go to it, they get it. That's why it's so seductive. Bliss like the warmth of a fire, clarity like the breaking of the dawn, non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. You can hardly bear to come out. And when you're out, you just want to get back in again. Well, that's because it's an artesian well of happiness. Spouses come and go, they get, they get grumpy. They say, I have a headache. <laughs> Shamana never has a headache. It never gets grumpy. You know, Never wakes up with morning breath. So this is why the Buddha said the bliss of samadhi is not to be feared. The bliss of hedonic pleasures. You're either anxious or you're stupid. If you know what's going on, if you can see what's coming, as you invest your life, you bank your life on this is going to turn out really well. This is just going to keep on delivering happiness indefinitely. Well, then you just, if you think that, you're just stupid. Because, come on, what, whatever happened to the reality of impermanence? You know, if that's what you're totally banking on, not to say, that again, that there's no place for hedonic pleasure, but if that's your total investment, that's what your whole portfolio is all investing in the marriage, the family, the job, 
the acquisitions, the wealth, the fame, the prestige, the security, what have you, all the bounties of the desire realm. If you're not anxious, you're not paying attention. And so a general anxiety disorder is an authentic response to life that is completely embedded in and based upon hedonic pleasure and the attachment to it. It's the only authentic response. Not to have a general anxiety disorder is to putting, be, be the ostrich putting your head in the, in, the, you know, in the sand. Ignorance is bliss until reality smacks you and you're no longer ignorant. You got a little whiff, a smack of reality because in, probably impermanence is coming, kick you in the groin. So what's, what can suffering be good for? To move one away from inauthentic sources, which are in fact not sources at all, but mere possible catalysts for very transient happiness that leaves us right where we started. That it's, it's like hopping on a train that takes you in a circle and it says, all off, and stop, and it's right where you started. Because you're not any further along anywhere than you were when you started. You're not wiser, you're not more compassionate, you're not happier, not, you're not anything. You just had some nice memories that then fade. It's, that's why it's called a loop, I think it's called samsara. It's a train that goes around in circles. So suffering can be meaningful to wake us up, to bring about a wise disillusionment, to recognize the liars of the liars, whether it's the African queen, whether it's the OCD with all of its sales pitches, or whether it's all the glamour and glitz of the marketplace and getting real. Suffering can be our greatest ally to kick us out of lethargy, complacency, and stupidity, to wake us up and get on some path that is real, that actually has a direction to it. From the hedonic, from the desire realm, dissatisfaction, disillusionment, releasing the five obscurations, including attachment to the sensual, the sensory field, the desire realm, releasing all the other five obscurations, coming in, tapping into the wellspring that was already there. Our own substrate consciousness. But then seeing that sooner or later you have to, you have to get up and pee. I mean that to put it really bluntly, you got a body and bodies need to pee. You can't stop drinking, you dehydrate. But if you drink, you have to pee. And that means you have to come out of your samadhi. And you probably have to eat too. And we know what that leads to. <laughs> oh, crap. No? And so you see, it's, it's kind of unsatisfying. I like to just stay there, but I have to keep on coming out. This is unsatisfying too. And then you got two routes. You can say, well, let's just try more of the same. It's basically like, like the person who finds it's really nice to have $100,000 and say, what would be like to have a million dollars? And kind of likes that. And then, well, how about $10 million? And actually likes that too, because now you've earned $10 million. That's a lot of money. But $100 million would be even better, because then you're really one of those rich dudes. You can have your own jet. You know. but, but you're not in the billionaire club yet. And billionaire, you can have multiple jets. In fact, I know a friend of a friend of mine is very very rich dude and he just lives in his jet he just lives in he just flies around I, I asked my friend where does he live and he said in his jet 
He just flies wherever he likes and just in his jet. That's, where, that's his home. His own personal big jet. You know? I just learned about somebody. This is breaking news. Oh, somebody in India now is building the most expensive home in the world. It's something at 17 stories, $1 billion for his wife and kids. A parking lot for 160 cars. Because after all, you want you have kids, your kids to have fun. And at least one swimming pool. I thought that was really stingy. I mean, come on, let's get rid of the at least part. I mean, we should have swimming pools on every floor. Otherwise, you have to take an elevator to get the swimming pool. I mean, I would find that very unsatisfying myself. <laughs> if I want a swimming pool, I want it here and I want it now. <laughs> So there we go. This is in Mother India. Ohoa. Land of Samadhi. So we bring it to a close. What can suffering be good for? To make us wake up. To be dissatisfied with that which is unsatisfying. And to seek something deeper. To stretch our imagination. To go from the desire realm realm of blatant suffering, the suffering of change, to the form realm. You've actually tapped into something authentic here, a genuine source of happiness. And then to recognize this too, this too will pass. It doesn't sustain itself indefinitely like samsara does. There needs to be something deeper. This was the Buddha's great breakthrough, the Buddha's great, great breakthrough, to use the shamatha in an unprecedented way, fusing it with vipassana, and tapping into what is actually ultimate reality, the unconditioned, that which is beyond change, and find the truth given joy. Again, there's some perennial wisdom here. And to keep on being dissatisfied all the way. So suffering is the, is the engine on the back. It's the propellant that moves us away, moves us away from the familiar. On the one hand. On the other hand, we have the fragrance. It's been cliched by a very smart man, Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. But the fragrance of something that's more than the hedonic, the fragrance of genuine happiness, and following that. And that's, I think, a lot of you, and perhaps all of you are already doing that here and now. You've had a few good sessions. A lot of you have had, if not spectacular, you've had some good sessions. And you say, you know, I know it now. A week ago, last Tuesday, I had a really good session. That means I could, why can't I have another one? And if it was that good, why couldn't it be a bit better? And why couldn't it stabilize? And why couldn't it become clearer? And why not? Why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness in the causes of happiness? Because now it actually becomes not a rhetorical question. Why not? I've got a taste of it. And you pick up the scent and you follow it. And you follow it. You follow it. Who's calling whom here? Where are you going? Someplace else? Or are you going to discover who you are? Who you are? Who you really are? Discover your own Buddha nature. And it will not let you rest. You will not let you rest. It's not God, it's not somebody else, it's not, not anything else. You will not let you rest until you discover who you are. And until then, you will be correctly restless. 
magnificently restless, wonderfully dissatisfied. Because if you got satisfied too soon, you'd stop. And you never know who you are. I mean, never. So it's dukkha and the fragrance of sukha that pushes us and pulls us to know who we are until we're really awake, completely and perfectly awake. So let's practice. Withdraw your awareness from all that stimulates hedonic pleasure into this quiet, non-conceptual field of the body. And settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm. And again, withdrawing your mind from all the conceptual stimulation, all the spam of the mind, releasing it with every outbreath, filtering out, filtering out. Let your mind come and settle by way of mindfulness of breathing.
Let's arouse our imagination and arouse the heart, the spirit or impulse of caring, focusing first of all upon ourselves as we venture from the familiar world of actuality to the unknown world of potential, of possibility. As you reflect first of all upon the unsatisfying nature of your own hedonic pursuits thus far, and of your, of your awareness of those around you as well. We don't need to confine our intelligence to our own personal experience. And first of all, to this world of actuality, the reality of dissatisfaction, restlessness, being ill at ease, anxious, fearful, as our hopes, are, hopes and fears are bound up in the world of desire. Consider that there may be something more. And the more you've experienced this something more, the more it really becomes for you. Imagine freedom from that whole bandwidth of dukkha, bound up and sustained by attachment, craving, clinging. As before, with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May I be free of all that obscures the inner wellspring of genuine happiness, the luminous, pure nature of my own awareness, my nature blissful. Consider, if you will, each of the five obscurations, the clinging and attachment to the bounties of the desire realm. Imagine being free. free of the obscuration of laxity, dullness, boredom, malaise, 
depression. A slippery slope. Breathe in the darkness with each inhalation as you imagine these obscurations vanishing. The obscuration of excitation, restlessness, agitation, and guilt, remorse, anxiety. Imagine being free. The searingly painful obscuration of malice, ill will, enmity. causes the mind to boil over with unhappiness. debilitating uncertainty, doubt of ourselves, doubt of others, complacent skepticism with no direction, no end in sight, just going around in circles. Imagine being free.
Imagine all the veils being lifted from the blissful, luminous, silent awareness. But is your birthright, your home, Expand your awareness and let your attention rove. To those who are in the midst of enjoying the bounties of this desire realm, thinking they've got it made, this is the good life. And of course, on the surface, it is good, it feels good. But insofar as it's nested in the web of attachment and craving, it's suffering waiting to happen. And as you let your attention rove from one individual, one group to another, arouse the yearning with each inhalation. May each one, like myself, be free.
release all appearances. Let your awareness rest, simply being present with its own presence. A little footnote to the preceding. Our Western philosophical tradition traces back, of course, to multiple sources. Democritus is one, wound up having indirectly quite a powerful influence, very much revitalized in the 17th, 18th century. But of course, he's not the only one. There were actually most of these ancient Greek philosophers were not materialists, and most of them were not hedonists either. One line, one guru lineage, that emphatically was not, uh, was that of Pythagoras. So while Democritus is sometimes called the father of of modern science, uh, Pythagoras is often called the father father of Western philosophy and also the father of mathematics, of Western mathematics. And Pythagoras, according to legend, could actually remember 20 of his past lives. And that guru lineage went from Pythagoras and then on into Socrates, into Plato, the Neoplatonic tradition, origin within the Christian tradition, affirming, allegedly based on experience, the continuity of individual consciousness beyond death. And when Plato addresses this, it's quite interesting. I don't remember exactly which text, but I cited it in my book, Contemplative Science. I'm quite sure it's there. That he writes about, about this with some, in some detail. What's it like after you're dead? And he said, you, so there you are, you're disembodied. You are a disembodied spirit. You... There you are. And before very long at all, you just feel this intense craving that you've got to get embodied again. You basically become a material, you're a materialist, and you've got to get embodied again. You need to take form, and you just can't rest until you've come back and taken form. But just like single pointed, got to get back. Robust, physical, material, got to become embodied. He said, that's what the non philosopher does one who is not trained in philosophy, one who is not a lover of wisdom, whereas the true philosopher, who has grown disenchanted with the desire realm, then dies, and then his soul, he, she, this being, then ascends to a divine realm where there is no physical embodiment. It's the form realm. 
I mean, it doesn't take much of a stretch of imagination at all to think he's talking about the form realm. And that seems to be pretty much where Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato tapped out, form realm. There's no reference to anything beyond that. A realm of pure form, geometrical forms, forms, but divine, that was as far as they got with divine. And so, but that was the vision. And the philosopher's task is to become wise and become radically disillusioned with the, what we would call the desire realm and aspire for a realm where one is not so limited. When Democritus encountered the right, excuse me, when Plato encountered the writings of Democritus, he was so disgusted by them, he wanted all of the books burned. Pretty intense response. So there were, but on a final point in this regard, I find it, I do find it having, I do have a scientific background, quite interesting because one of the central themes of science is that if multiple labs, especially using different systems of measurement, draw the same conclusion, running different experiments, but the same conclusion, whether it's the atomic mass of helium or whether there, whether there really is a, you know, a potentially habitable planet 21 light years away, but multiple strategies, multiple methods, some more mathematical, abstract, some more purely observational, but coming different labs, different methods, if they come in and they come to the same conclusion, then there's a, str and especially if it's multiple ones, as I said, then there's a stronger and stronger confidence within the scientific community that their conclusion is not an artifact of their system of measurement. It's actually something that is true, independent of their own particular system of measurement. And in other words, it's true of nature. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's absolutely inherently true, but it does imply it's not just a concoction, a fabrication, a mere speculation or wish fulfillment. Well, consider that this view, that when we die, we're temporarily disembodied, and then if we're ordinary beings, then we just develop this incredible desire to become re-embodied and we find a way to do so. That's core Buddhism. That goes right back to the teachings of the Buddha himself. He describes the Antarabhava in the Pali Canon. It's there. I can show the sources. That's in Mind and the Balance. Sources about the Bardo and the teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. But that's funny. Plato said the same thing about two or three centuries later. Was he reading the Pali Canon? No reference, no reference to any contact at all, independent lab. Because it wasn't just speculating. Pythagoras had a system of training, it seemed to be samadhi, it would be a pretty good guess, to actually check this out empirically. And then we jump 2,300 years up to the research of Ian Stevenson. They're all secular people, they're not, they're, I don't think there's a Hindu or a Buddhist among them, they're simply researchers in the field of psychology psychiatry, Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker, and others in that field, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. And they found now dozens of cases, not only of children with alleged past life memories, but with alleged memories of what it was like in between, and lo and behold, it's the same story. They got disembodied, they died, they're in this in-between state, and then before long, they're just scurrying to get embodied again. Three independent labs, same conclusion. Gosh, it's funny how people can be so superstitious in exactly the same ways. Or not. So, all right, this looks like a very good practical question. I've not read either of these yet. 
Okay. I am wondering, I'll deal with the long one first. We still have a bit of time here. Good. I'm wondering about the vividness aspect of mindfulness of breathing. If I narrowly enhance vividness at the apertures of the nostrils, it sometimes causes discomfort, sinus pressure, and or light-headedness. However, if I relax into vividness of whole experience, relaxation, lightness, spaciousness, the nostrils are more in the background, but it is much more wonderful experience, and I feel as if I can go on forever. Is this just getting hooked by the pleasurable experience and not doing correct practice? Yeah? Yeah. And that is... I've, I've taught some people. One, one person vividly comes to mind. Taught shamatha, and before, within a matter of days, this one individual was experiencing bliss just regularly. And, and no, I'll not give you his address or his telephone number. But just, you know, he would just start practicing and bliss would come up and it was just kind of regular, bliss, bliss, bliss. person never turned into a serious yogi. He already got bliss. I got bliss, what do I need anything more for? Happy camper. So it never developed, just got bliss. Suck, sucker. <laughs> you know? I don't really mean that, he's a very sweet fellow. But he never developed any robust meditative practice at all. There was no dukkha. <laughs> there was no engine behind him. He just got immediately the ice cream bowl of you know, a faint facsimile of the bliss of shamatha and got satisfied right there. So, yeah, one can be complacent very early on. In that case, it was unusual. He had, had simply the right psychophysiological constitution to experience bliss soon. A very big sand trap, almost like a golf course. Look out for this one. Everybody gets caught here or a lot of people get caught here, this is a sand trap you don't want to fall, get your ball to fall into, is the fourth stage. And it's not no much, so much known for bliss as really serene and flow, a flow that just can go on for hours and hours and hours. You know, take a break every hour or two, whatever, but just, just flow, just serenity, peaceful flow, and thinking, oh, if one had not studied well, had not learned about the nine stages, think, jolly good, shamatha. This must be shamatha. Actually, maybe it's nirvana. No, I think I like Rikpa. I really like the flavor of the word Rikpa. It's probably a Rikpa. Um, you know. So it's very easy to com become complacent in any of these ways. But why focus there? Well, number one, when focusing tightly, that is with a narrow focus on the apertures of the nostrils, then there was this comment, sinus pressure, lightheadedness. Well, this is because you're focusing with too much intensity. It's the same old, same old. This is why we're doing this, this rolling up to it. Developing the presence, deepening the relaxation, the same old metaphor, the root system of relaxation, the, the, the trunk of stability and the branches and foliage of vividness, is you'll be able to focus there with laser-like precision, almost like as if you're doing laser surgery on the tip of your nose. You'll be able to do that with great precision, great acuity, high resolution, and sustain it with no pressure coming up in the head, no sinus, no throbbing, maybe a bit of funny tingly, business, sometimes you may feel you have elephantitis of the nose, you know, like an elephant seal. Mm. <laughs> It'll pass, you know. And rest assured, you know, as soon as you go to the mirror, it didn't happen. You know, this, is, this is good. It just means a lot of prana is coming to the nose, but it'll pass. You kind of get it sorted out. Um, but if there's that kind of pressure that I've referred to so often, that means you're bringing too much intensity. You're bringing too much sheer muscle to it. There's not enough relaxation, so keep on, as soon as that builds up, come back. As soon as there's sinus pressure, come back. Back to the belly, back to the whole body, back to the earth element, or go out, as I've told many of you by now, 
go out and take a nice, spacious, mindful walk and let your awareness come out. So keep on tilling the soil deeper and deeper and deeper into the mulchy soil of relaxation, looseness, relaxation, looseness, ease, all of that business, so that you can then sustain that sense of lightness, delicacy, finesse to the tight focus. And then why? Because if you do that, then these sensations of the breath, you'll be attending to them as they get subtler and subtler and subtler. And that will arouse greater and greater and greater vividness together with the stability, together with the relaxation. And that's this beautiful loop or synergy of the three qualities. And you get it only there at the apertures of the nostrils. You don't get it at the belly or the full body. And you get more and more relaxed, more and more stable, and more and more vivid. And that'll lead you on a straight line to the acquired sign. Whereas if you bail out and say, oh, this is giving me too much sinus. I'm just going to go into bliss and more spaciousness. Fine, but you'll be stuck there. You'll be stuck there. Not going to go anywhere. Or not. Check it out, then you'll see whether I'm wrong. Do I know, do I know of any people in today's world achieving shamatha, arhatship, and darshanamaga? If yes, who? If, if yes, who? <laughs> if not, why? You think I'm going to tell you that? You must be kidding. No, it's a, it's a legitimate question. Um, achieving shamatha, yes. Yes. Um, I can tell you one name. That's not to say that there, there's only one. There are certainly more than one, but there's one of my teachers who on good authority, and I think the evidence is also there, is the chief shamatha. And this is an extraordinary lama, wonderful lama, named Venerable Yangtang Rinpoche. Yangtang Rinpoche. He's a Nyingma lama. He's about late 70s by now. Dzogchen master. He's a long, long, decades-long friend of one of my central lamas, Gyatra Rinpoche. And uh, Yantana Rinpoche has achieved shamatha, achieved vipassana, gained very profound insight in Dzogchen. He sleeps for about an hour and a half a night, 76, mind clear as a bell. He'll go on and give a Dharma talk for five hours, no sweat. And on November 26th, in the San Francisco Bay Area, he'll, he'll begin to offer a whole series of Dzogchen empowerments with a Nima lineage, of course, called the Rinchen Derzu. Rinchen Derzu, starting November 26th in Alameda, sponsored by Orgin Dorje Den, which is Gyatra Rinpoche's center in the Bay Area. Gyatra Rinpoche has invited him to give this whole series of empowerments. So he is one. There are many others, but I think, you know, just giving that whole other names and so forth, not so useful. But what's important is, that it, is it possible any longer? The answer is yes. Are those who have achieved arhatship? Um... As you well know, my primary experiential contact with any Buddhist tradition is overwhelmingly in the Tibetan. I really have almost none with Zen. It's not a lack of respect. They didn't have the karmic connections, and that's not where my life led me. But Namo, to the Chan tradition, the Zen tradition, deep respect. I've just, I, have en- I know enough about it to have respect, and, but that's just not where my path led me. So probably, in my case, something like 90% is in the, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, and largely in the Yalukpa for the first 20 years, Gaigyut Nyingma, especially Nyingma for the last 20 years, the Sakyapa, my first Dharma teacher who really taught me Dharma was the Sakyapa. And the first empowerment I ever received was Sakyatinsa Nirmaji, the head of the Sakya order. So kind of a heartfelt end. How could I even pause without mentioning her name? Sakyadamala is one of my very, very central and most revered and beloved teachers, lamas. 
uh, Sakya Damala. She's the wife of the alter alternate head of the Sakya order, Dakya Nirmoche. So that's where most of it is. And, and within that tradition, as you can easily imagine, they don't talk about, oh, this Lama achieved our hardship. And all the other Lamas said, well, what, 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 what happened? Oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How did he get derailed? How did he lose his bodhicitta? What, what happened? You know, what went wrong? And so it doesn't come up because overwhelmingly in the, in the Indo-Tibetan current, it's Mahayana and it's Mahayana in preparation for Vajrayana. And this, that just doesn't lead to becoming an Arhat. Arhat as such, it leads to becoming a Buddha. But, and a Buddha is an Arhat, but Arhat as a separate category, culmination of the Shravakayana path, it doesn't come up. Um, within the Theravada tradition, there have been various claims by some individuals in the 20th century. I think the safest thing and the most the best thing for me to, would be to say, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know the tradition well enough. I mean, I know a couple of names of people in Burma. I think one in Thailand, people say. But then it's hearsay of a tradition I'm not deeply trained in. And I don't know those people, and I don't know their students. And so I don't have any empirical evidence. And so I just say, so, I'm going to just be, I don't know. I don't know. His Holiness commented, the Dalai Lama commented, that there have been, so this I know he said. This I know, what I know, I know what I'm talking about, I know the Dalai Lama said the following. He said, from his perspective, there are individuals in the Theravada tradition nowadays who may regard themselves as having achieved arhatship through the practice of Satipatthana, gaining realization of impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. And having then cleansed, purified a whole bandwidth, a whole spectrum of mental afflictions that arise independence upon, grasping onto the impermanent as permanent, that which is dukkha as sukha, that which is not I as I and mine. So you've cleaned that one out. It's like, you know, spring house cleaning. And you've cleaned out one whole room of that whole dimension of delusion of misapprehension of reality, and therefore all the little outcrops of that, all the mental afflictions that crop out of grasping onto the impermanent, impermanent and so forth, they don't happen. You're cured. But now from the Mayana perspective, and the Dalai Lama is clearly and explicitly speaking from the Prasangika Madhyamaka perspective. So now we're, this is internal Buddha talk. And what I'm saying is true of the Prasangika Madhyamaka view, and the Dalai Lama, of course, represents that impeccably. I mean, he's a fantastic scholar and contemplative. He says, unless you've realized emptiness, unless you've realized emptiness, the absence of inherent nature of all phenomena, you're not an arhat. You're not an arya. So if all you've realized is the lack of a immutable, unitary, independent self, if that's the level of your insight into anatta, or you simply recognize there is no self, there is no I, there's no person here apart from the five skandhas who somehow quasi-autonomous and running them, and you see the absence of that, anatta. Good, good, that'll clean out a lot of mental afflictions. But unless you've realized not only, and this is the gist of it, not only the emptiness of self, but as stated so clearly, this is the fork in the road between the Shravakayana, the Theravada, the Theravada, and the Mahayana, specifically the perfection of wisdom. There's a fork in the road here. And that is 
not only have you realized the emptiness of self, but you've also realized the emptiness of each of the five skandhas. Very clearly in the Heart Sutra. Not only the self, but also form and feeling and recognition, and mental formations and consciousness. They too are empty. And then he goes through the 18 datus and everything is empty. From atoms up to Buddha mind. From elementary particles up to Buddha mind. The whole bandwidth, like an accordion. You see that? That's the whole spread of, of, of the phenomenal world. It's all empty. If you've not realized that, you're not an arhat. So one may think one's an arhat, one may not be an arhat. So there are ways of testing that. This, I'm sure, sounds very theological. And, and for most people it is. I mean, it's, it's belief. Okay, well, great. I hope there's some arhats around. But um, some of these can be tested. It'll be great. I hope within five or ten years, five years should be enough, if we really get our act together, that we can br invite the scientists to the party. This is not inviting them to become converted to Buddhism. It's inviting them to know more about the nature of the mind. They should be interested. And they have skills, methods, that the Buddhists don't have. Neuroscientific methods, behavioral methods, they have a great arsenal of objective, third-person, quanti quantifiable systems of measurement. Very cool. Buddhists don't have that. Uh, and to invite them to, party, to the party and to monitor individuals following the path of shamatha through the nine stages, the achievement of shamatha, and get one and five and ten and fifteen doing it. Because frankly, I don't know of a single place in the world, I mean literally not even one, not in Tibet or t my first trip to Tibet was to find this out. And of course, it's not an exhaustive search, but I did my best. Is there any place in the world, a retreat center that is all set up with one or more teachers and everything that is designed to fulfill all the requirements of the environment as described in classic shamatha? Is there one that is all really about that, with authentic teachers, where it's very, very clear? Well, there may be. I mean, I know there's a claim of one in Burma. I've looked at it, and I have to say I'm, I'm skeptical. Maybe I'm just wrong, but I am skeptical, because my, for me, the bar is very high. The bar is very, and I've heard so many, oh, it, it, make, it, make, it exhausts me, how many spurious claims I've heard about achieving shamatha. There's one article that said, should we come out of shamatha? Yeah, give me a break. How do, why do you think you got in? You know, ah, there's so much shoddy scholarship and ridiculous claims that comes up primarily from Westerners. They, and, it's, it, and I don't mean to be disparaging. They just don't know any better. They never put in the, the tough work of really studying well so they know what the words mean. They just pick up some slogans, you know, and then they think, oh, that was a really good weekend. I think that was the first jhana. Oh, that felt good. Oh. You know, so there's so much out there, so much, and I've heard so many stories. I've been doing this for 40 years, and you know, each time I hear a new story, oh, this teacher, I heard one recently, this teacher, this teacher, he leads his students to, oh, they've achieved jhana, they can do this, do that. It sounded kind of promising. Keep it very vague. So I don't want to pick on any person, but you can imagine if you're a scientist and you hear people doing crap science, they're fudging the data, or they're just so ignorant they don't even know when the data's bad that you kind of wouldn't be too happy with that, because science is magnificent when it's done well. And so is Buddhist meditation. So I heard of one. This, this man, he's getting people to achieve jhana really fast, a couple of months. So I checked it out. I checked it out. I really checked it out. Got into correspondence with one of the people who said he'd achieve, and he 
said he had achieved. First person, I have achieved first jhana. That's great. He could meditate for two hours at a stretch. What about 24 hours at a stretch? That's what Buddha Gosa said. Two hours at a stretch? Give me a break. And he's a businessman. And that's it. That's the evidence. You can meditate for two hours straight. Hoo-ha! So I've heard an awful lot of that, you know? So I tend to be just generally skeptical. And I don't know of a single place. But that's why I want to see a contemplative observatory. It's transparently clear. No... No fog around it. What are the teachings? Transparently clear. Who's there? Transparently clear. Can we bring some science in? Why not? What are the behavioral measures? What's the EEG? Can we do an fMRI every three months or so? Can we find some place? And just what are the behavioral markers, the neurophysiological markers? What's the first-person markers? Can we just get this out in the, out in the daylight? You know? That would be really cool. And so that's what I'd like to see happen. So no, I don't know of anybody where I feel confident this person is an arhat, but all that was was an expression of ignorance. Darshana marga, well, as I said, and I bemoan the fact, this hardly ever, ever comes up. Because what we have, and it's, it's, this, it's this balance between wisdom and faith, and, I, and I, I'm reiterating, and I'm going to be really brief, because it's dinner time. But on the one hand, there's guru yoga. And I embrace guru yoga. Really do. I really do. Sravakayana level, Mahayana level, Vajrayana level, Dzogchen. Enormously powerful. It's profound. It's deep. I, I embrace the traditional teachings. And I could, I could explain why, but I won't now. But I think it's extremely profound. Looking upon one's own guru as a Buddha. That's Vajrayana. It's not Sutrayana. It's certainly not Sravakayana. But it is Vajrayana. Certainly is Dzogchen. You're looking upon your guru as a Buddha. With very good reason tremendous benefit. It's not just a skillful trick to delude yourself because you get more blessings. It's much, much, it's infinitely deeper than that. That's with respect to one's guru. But when one says that, this is not a declaration, oh, by the way, my guru has followed the five paths and the ten bhumis, and you're you're not doing that. It's a different vector. It's a different vector. Bearing in mind that in the t- classic teachings of Tsongkhapa and so forth, your guru could be a village priest. You know. And you can still regard him as a Buddha. From your perspective, this individual. That on the one hand, that's where Guru Yoga comes in. And it's wise, and it's faith, but it's faith-based. This is very different and thinking a person like Yang Tanabuchi, Gyatranabuchi is a colleague, he's a friend, he's a long time, long, long friend of Yang Tanabuchi. So he's not speaking out of simple guru devotion. He's known this man for like 60, 70 years and knows what he's been through, the kind of training, the meditation and so forth. And so there's that. Oh, this person put in 20 years and this person achieved this and then that and then this and that. Like when His Holiness, when I asked His Holiness this question about shamatha, 30 years ago, he said, I asked him, do you know anybody who's achieved shamatha? He said, oh yeah, this is Geshe, Geshe Nima. He's not one of the Dalai Lama's gurus. He's now saying, oh, he's a Buddha, therefore he must have achieved shamatha. No, he practiced shamatha, he achieved shamatha. And he told me who he was, Geshe Nima. He passed away not too long ago. And so what happens a lot in 21st century Tibetan Buddhism, 
is that we find either the references are persons is ordinary, or a good scholar, or a really nice lama, a very friendly person, or has achieved, come to the culmination of stage regeneration and completion. Anybody in between? I know where I am. You say he's up here. By the way, what's the evidence? Well, there's no evidence. Just take my word for it. Because he's a really good lama. Well, there's really good lamas, and then there's people who are perfectly enlightened Buddhas. They're not exactly the same. So I think this is too bad. I think we're missing out on the richness of our own tradition to unpack the map. And on the one hand, Guru Yoga is Guru Yoga. But on the other hand, if I refer to a person over here and say, this person has achieved X, Y, Z, then this shouldn't be faith-based. This should be, because I've got some real good reasons for saying that. So the answer is no. I don't know if anybody has been referred to as, a, as achieving you know, path of seeing, darshana marga. And I think we should. But I'd li- I, I would be, if you want to really blow my mind, have somebody, some really marvelous yogi, practice for however long, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, and then have somebody with tremendous competence like His Holiness or other great lamas saying, this person has achieved the Mahayana path of accumulation. Oh man, I would. I just fall on my face. Really? Kuno Lama Rinpoche. I can't say path of, I wouldn't say that particular path, but was he a bodhisattva? Looks like it. Kuno Lama Rinpoche. Bodhisattva. He didn't say, stage of completion, stage of blah, blah, blah. He's a bodhisattva. He's really a bodhisattva. And you see, if you ever see His Holiness refer to Kuno Lama Rinpoche, oh, you want to see faith? You want to see devotion, reverence? That's his lineage for the Bodhicharavatara. He could have had the lineage of Bodhicharavatara from anybody. I mean, everybody's got it. It's the most commonly taught text in all of Tibetan Buddhism. But who does His Holiness identify as his lineage when he teaches Bodhicharavatara? Kuno Lama Rinpoche. Why? Because he was a Bodhisattva. That's impressive. So, I'm a fundamentalist, I finally confess. <laughs> In the sense, let's get to the fundamentals. Let's get to the fundamentals. Could we actually achieve shamatha? Could more than one person do it? And could it be out transparent? Not to celebrate names and egos, because that's why I'm so reticent about that, because man, we're into that in the West. We're all about individualism, celebrity, status, fame, and so forth for individuals. And it's so antithetical to the whole Buddhist tradition. So I'm not going there. But can we simply have, set up this environment, people achieve shamatha, achieve bodhicitta, achieve vipassana, stage regeneration, stage of completion, good. Do it the old-fashioned way. Earn it. <laughs> you remember that? Earn it. Or go take shamatha, vipassana, take your turkey. Get in the fast lane, either way. But let's make it real. Make it transparent. Well, that's all. Enjoy your night. <laughs>